got a great song to play, you know. Just, uh, uh. Hello? Have you ever snogged a lady? Um, we had a technical problem. Are we on? Come on. Yeah, <laughs> we're on there. Come on, swear. Yo, 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 big shout out to the Crunch and Roll Massive. You're locked on to the UK's number one light-hearted radio industry interview podcast. Represent. Text me now. You know the digits. Shout out to Dean Golden Square. Your stations are dope. Big up to Terry. What you up to now, bro? And Ashley Nesta Square. OMG fam. Keep it locked. Rap, rap. Today, I welcome to the podcast somebody that I've worked with and worked for in the past. It's the great Simon Monk. And after we get through the initial harrowing story of how I once saw his testicles, he tells us how John Myers passed on signing one of radio's biggest names for the sake of a couple of quid, how I was responsible for him getting a death threat, and I remind him of how he used to compare himself to one of football's best managers, much to his embarrassment. There will absolutely be some swearing and some content to make your mother blush. Oh, yeah. Simon Monk, how are you? Do you know what? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. It's um, it's a real shame that we don't, well, we don't live closer because we you and I were, well, we still are very good friends, but we used to enjoy a beer or two together. Um, I mean, obviously you couldn't handle your beer and I could. Um, uh, well, whatever. But it's been... You're going to tell the kimono story, aren't you? Well... <laughs> it's completely made up no this is not this is just before we get on to your life and your career I've got many uh, very fond memories of uh, of Simon being my senior producer being my boss as well at Signal One Uh, and at our time in Birmingham one of my favourite stories is uh, we met for some beers in Brum uh, got completely hammered ordered a Chinese which I paid for uh, spent £105 on Chinese food of which we had a spring roll each and uh, at the time, you were living in a in a tiny little one bedroom flat. I mean, it was just it, it was just a room actually, because there was a curtain that you pulled across. Just a couple. It of wasn't beds. a curtain. It wasn't a curtain. It was more like a cupboard. Okay. Uh, and I, I, I went into your flat to get to eat the Chinese, and you were like, "Well, if you want to stay over, you can." And I was like, "Okay, that'd be great." I said, "I looked around. I was thinking, where am I going to sleep here? I'm not top of the tailing with the gaffer." As he pulled out this, this bed, which was fine. Uh, and I'm a large lad, got on it, struggled a little bit all night, didn't sleep very much. And then the, the one point where I did fall asleep, I was awoken by Mr. Monk straddling me <laughs> with his testicles hanging out, wearing a commode, which I'd not seen that night. <laughs> wearing a commode? You know what a commode is? No, I don't. What, I, I've, you mean a kimono, I know, and yeah. I wasn't wearing a kimono, and I didn't straddle you, and only about 20% of that story's true. I definitely saw well, your it, testicles. But, but the bit about the Chinese is true. <laughs> so I, I, that fed me for about a week. Afterwards. Yeah, well, you owe me for that. Well, look, thank you very much for being on Crunch and Roll. It's lovely to see your face again. Um, we, we've spent many years together and, and talked about a lot of radio, but I genuinely don't know where your passion started. Oh, right. Okay. Well, that's, yeah, I mean, it started in, um, I can remember the first time I really fell in love with radio was uh, growing up in Berkshire. And my dad would go into London a lot on business. Um, and I'd take my Matsui ghetto blaster with me on these trips um, just so that I could listen to Capital and I'd sit in in the car for six hours listening to Capital and thinking wow this is this is incredible and it never really occurred to me that radio was for me I mean you know you grow up in a little village like Finchampstead and 
no no offence to anyone who's ever worked there, but the local station's 210, John. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Go on. Um, So all the local kids did used to listen to uh, to Capital and and Tim Westwood. Um, And that's what we did, you know. And uh, and so that was where the kind of love began. Um, And then I didn't go into radio to to begin with. I actually went into travel. I went into the travel industry before radio. You did, didn't Um, you? I'd forgotten that you you were a travel agent for some time. Yeah, yeah, I did. I, I was really good at it so good at it that people would turn up at the airport and I forgot to confirm their flights. <laughs> <laughs> so, so they'd rock up at, like, you know, Gatwick, go to check in. They'd be like, oh, I booked it through, um, I'm not going to say the company name, but because very, you know, good company. I was just rubbish at it. Um, they, so, they, they, so the airport desk would be phoning this travel agent that I worked for. And they'd, I'd answer the phone pretend it wasn't me, hand the phone over to my best mate, Mick, who sat opposite me, and Mick would jump on the phone and go, what do you mean this flight wasn't confirmed? Of course it was confirmed. We're a very professional company. And um, they'd end up getting on the flight most of the time. But um, yeah, it clearly wasn't for me. So how do you go from being a travel agent to working in the industry then? As a family, we all moved north. So we were living in Berkshire. We all, my mum and dad suddenly decided, Blackpool's the place to be, let's go there. So we all moved north. And um, I was working in the travel industry up there and I was lying in bed one day. It was actually on my birthday. 1st of June, uh, 1990 was the day that Rock FM and Red Rose Gold split. And I was lying in bed and I listened to this thing. And again, I was thinking, this is magical. And a few days later, an advert came on and said, you know, we're looking for a programs assistant, I think it was, um, for Rock FM. And I was like, I could do that. Um, so I got my mum and dad to write the CV and cover letter, of course, because I wouldn't have a clue. So there were two, two reasons I, I got the job. One was I was very relaxed. Well, there's a reason for that. My mum and dad were moving to Corfu a month later, and I'd already lined up a job in the golf course there. So I was like, well, if I get this job, great. If not, I'm going to be working on a golf course in Corfu. Brilliant. The other thing that got me the job was they asked this one question. This was the killer question in the interview, and that was um, it was Mark Matthews that interviewed me, a lovely guy. And he said, if you were in the building one day and the breakfast presenters all called in sick and there was no one to do the show, what would you do? And the correct answer is, I would phone everyone until I found someone to do the show. No one wants to hear me on the radio. (laughs) (laughs) And everyone else gave the answer of, oh, I jump on air. And they just went, well, you know, you actually want this job. You're not seeing this as a stepping stone to getting on air. So I got the job. So that's how I went from, you know, missing people's flights to working with some legends like Mark Matthews and, of course, John Myers. and um, uh, Rossi was there at the time. Dara Corcoran, some really big characters. Dave Shearer was there at the time. Oh, It's amazing how many people from that era went on to be programmers. Um, and I don't think there's any kind of, you know... I don't think it's a coincidence. I think it's we're all we're all influenced by the same guy. So, well, obviously you're talking about the mighty Myers there, and we'll talk about because you've got a lot of love for John Myers, and we'll get onto uh, to him in just a bit. Um, because I, I just want to briefly touch upon the fact that you, I, I know you've been a programmer for for many years, but you you were a presenter, Simon. Yeah, and I I I can't. I've tried. And for anybody listening right now, who if you've got any, I would love to hear it. But I would love to hear some audio of you on it. Were you any good on it? I didn't think so. Genuinely, I didn't. Um, 
but other people said so. But it's very difficult. I think the only time, well, actually, the only person I know who ever said anything nice about me on air was was Rich Clark. <laughs> so who went on to do great things, do the chart and everything. He was coming up to CFM for an interview. Um, and he was, I was covering the show and wanted to get off it. So I wanted him to do it instead. And he was listening and apparently he said to someone else, why the hell are they recruiting? This guy's great. Um, but that's the one compliment anyone has ever said about me on air. I mean, all the times I joined in on your shows, you never, not once. <laughs> not once. Clinging but, on, um, clinging on yeah, to that one so comment. He's got it tattooed I, I on his back. You know, I found it really difficult being a presenter and being the program controller at the same time, though, because I just broke all the rules. You know, I'd forget to do time checks. I All the things that I have a go at, or had to have a go at presenters for doing, I'd be there just going, oh, I don't matter. Um, you know, and I did, did a, there's a, did I ever tell you about my last ever radio link? No, go on. This sums up my my presenting career perfectly, I think. So last show I'm ever doing, I'm, I'm in the studio with my best mate, Pete Moss, who's just left CFM, I think. Uh, been there for years, absolute Cumbrian legend. We're doing the show and Rich Clark is taking over from me. So me and Pete are doing the show. Rich is in the studio as well. It's the end of the show. And there was this running theme throughout where I tried to get Pete a girlfriend. And I would write letters to famous people to ask them to go out with him and stuff like that. And it'd be, it was a bit of a kind of arc all the way through. So final show, it's like, I go on air, open the mic. I'm like, right, this is my last attempt. I've got to try and find Pete a girlfriend. He needs a girlfriend in his life. And you know what? He saw the dream woman on Friday night. We were in Hollywood Bowl in Carlisle. It was Friday night. We were in the bar area and there was this girl there. She had blonde hair. She had a red jumper on and she was wearing blue. Now, they were jeans, but they were a certain style of jean. But I got it slightly wrong. She was wearing blue bell ends. (laughs) (laughs) Meaning bell bottoms, obviously. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And... I look over the other side of the desk and Pete and Rich just disappear. They literally disappear under the desk. I'm like, I'm there thinking, what's wrong with those knobs? So I'm carrying on and I'm like, uh, so anyway, right, so uh, looking for this girl, uh, Hollywood Bowl, Friday night in the bar area, long blonde hair, red jumper and blue bellends. The second time I realised and said it. The second time I look over and they are now just dying on the floor and I've got to finish off my final ever link as a presenter. I'm now laughing. And I literally, my last link was, CFM, play a song. Um, You know, probably, probably was, you know, probably played a a certain song, like my goodbye song or something like that, like you used to do in those days. I know fully well that you enjoy the the long goodbyes, don't you, when people leave shows? Because you've, um, as a a programmer, you've had to... uh, had to deal with a couple of those. Yeah, and a few of those. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> both both at the same station. <laughs> pretty, pretty unique place where you did breakfast with a girl called Emma and, yeah. and a few others. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I wondered, what do you think? If you're a programmer, do you think you, you should have spent time on air? Do you think that makes you a better programmer? I think I probably do, actually. I think you've got to understand the pressure um, that people are under. You've got to understand what, you know, what they're doing, um, how they're doing it. I think when you're coaching people and and getting to improve their performance, you don't necessarily have to have been the best presenter in the world, but you've got to have walked in their shoes, I think. That's the way I feel about it. I mean, I'm trying to think about the people that have influenced me, and I don't think any of them weren't ever on air at some point. So I do think, I think there is something about that walking in their shoes that, that makes sense. 
Um, I agree. So you don't have to be the best. And it's like, you know, you look at the best football managers in the world. They weren't necessarily the best players, but they're students of the game. And they understand it. They understand the nuts and bolts and how to put it together. And I think it's pretty similar in radio. I don't think you have to be the best, but you've got to have done some of that. You talk about not being the best, but I, I remember on a couple of occasions um, you referring to yourself as the Jose Mourinho of radio. <laughs> yeah, I, I did. I did. And I did. Uh, I feel really embarrassed now, but I did. <laughs> I mean, the reason I said it was, at the time, every football club that Mourinho had been at, when he left, they weren't doing as well as when he was there. Okay. <laughs> and that was the same in my career. Now I put that down to obviously my brilliance and not the fact that, you know, media, media trends change all the time and there's more competition. Um, but now, yeah, you got me there. You, uh, you, you mentioned influences there and I know that John Myers is your biggest influence, isn't he? Well, yeah, I mean, he's, he's someone who I um, met in 1990 and um, he then took me to CFM. To, to launch it with him. So tell uh, me, t- tell me about that. So t- tell me about that moment in your career where, so did John Myers, I'm guessing it wouldn't have even been an email. Did he call you? He texted you and said, do you fancy being part of the team? How did that, all that work? Uh, he stopped me in the corridor at Red Rose. Um, so I was at Red Rose. He was, he, he had then at that, by that point, he was program controller for Red Rose Rock FM and uh, Red Rose Gold. And um, we got on really well. And I, at that point, I'd started to produce his show as well a bit. So, he got me doing various things like answering the phones on the morning market, which was hilarious. Uh, what was it? Nothing, nothing dangerous and nothing alive we could sell. Everything else is fine. And there are some brilliant moments about that. I've got cracking stories to tell you about the morning market with John Myers. So we were just, we were in the corridor and he said, look, team, come work for me in Carlisle. Now at the time I was on £6,000 a year. Wow. Right? Um, as the breakfast show producer for Rock FM and Red Rose Gold. So I was producing Paul Jordan and John Myers at the same time. John didn't take much producing, in, in, in fairness, and that's not a slight on Paul. He was I mean, genius on air. But, you know, John just left me to it. He just wanted me to come in at certain points, like the morning market. And then he said to me, right, well, I'm, I'll offer you £8,000 to come and work for me. <laughs> now, that doesn't sound like much, £8,000, but a 30% pay rise is quite big. Yeah, not bad. Not bad. <laughs> so, and, you know, moving to Carlisle, one of the cheapest place, parts of the country to live. So I was like, great. Um, uh, yeah, great. Count, count me in. It, it got around the building that, you know, that I might be leaving to go with John. And the uh, boss, Mike Henfield, came up to me and he said, um, come, and, come and see me in, in, in my office. Um, and one of my other, Paul Jordan had said to me, oh, he's going to match the offer for you to stay at Rock. <laughs> like, I do sound like a... Premier League footballer at the moment, but no, he's going to match the offer for you to stay rock. And I thought, you know what? I can still live with my mum and dad. I'm, only, I'm still only, what's I, 19 years old. I can still live at home. It's going to be cheaper. I'll go and see what he's got to say. So I, did, I nearly risked ruining the whole relationship with John Myers. So I go in and see him, and he just then said, he went, well, you do realise that, you know, you're going to have to pay rent. You're going to have to do this. You're going to have to do that. I'm not offering you any more money. And I was like, right, okay. Well, in that case, then I'm definitely leaving. <laughs> and that was it. And, and, and we off, off we went. And, you know, we, we got there in the January and we'd launched by the April. 
Um, and in the January, we didn't even have studios. We had nothing. It was literally a building site when we got there. And we, there was a trestle table in the middle of the boardroom and we just sat around it. Three of us, me, um, about four of us. It was me, John Myers, Daryl Thomas and Dave Croft, who was the head of music. And that was it. And me and Dave Croft lived, to get, lived together. And that was horrific. But, <clears throat> but nothing against Crofty. He's a nice guy. Do you know... Um- all I've ever heard are wonderful things about John Myers, and I I never met the guy when he was uh, when he was alive. What was it about John Myers that that everybody, including yourself, absolutely adored? Uh, loads of things. I think one the first thing is he knew radio, right? He knew it inside out. He knew audiences. He knew what his audience was. So he didn't try and play any kind of games with it. You know, he he knew exactly what they wanted. Um, you know, it, at times it could feel a bit you know, Daily Mirror, Daily Star, but, you know, kind of radio that, but it was what the masses wanted and he was excellent at that. And then he went on to become an amazing businessman as well. So what always takes me by surprise is how young he was when we launched CFM. And I think, oh, I couldn't have done that. I think he was only in his early 30s, something like that. It's crazy to think that he, you know, had the balls to go to his home city get some investors involved and away he goes and launches this radio station. He was the most human person you'd, you could ever meet, you know, just a beautiful person, really looked out for people. When I was having a bad day, even when I wasn't working for him, if I put anything, you know, slightly attention seeking on social media, he'd get in touch. And, you know, I remember once he, I don't know, I was having a tough time at Hallam at the time and um, he messaged me and he said, um, don't worry, you can, you're, you're, you're going to be fine. The next few weeks are going to be really exciting for you. And I was like, what the hell does he mean? L- little did I know he was judging the R- uh, the Archivers. <laughs> 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 and we got two nominations. And so like a few weeks later, we get these two nominations. And I'm like, oh, that's what John meant. So I go to the Archivers and we win the two awards. And he comes up to me, gives me this massive hug. And he went, Team, I told you you'd be happy. I was like, you know, he didn't need to do any of that stuff. He could give you a fierce bollocking. He, he had me on the verge of tears at least once but within 10 minutes he was back over to my desk and went Tim do you want to come to our house I'm, I'm going to get Linda to do a stew <laughs> um, and, yeah, like, you know, you've, you've literally just bought me a new one and in the next breath you're about, that was one of his best qualities was he didn't hold on to stuff right so he would bollock you for something and then once he'd done it that was it it was gone now you, you mentioned a story from the morning market so this is on was he on breakfast was he on CFM this is breakfast on um, Red Rose Gold. Right, okay. Stand correct. 9.99. Okay, um, a new producer. Uh, so I was. I used to sit in this side room out of the studio, uh, headset on like, you know, much like I'm wearing today, uh, and I'd have to go through the, the lines. Now, trust me, we would open the lines for Morning Market, uh, I think it was nine till half nine, like, literally full board of calls from the second we open it, and people are coming on, they're selling all sorts of crap. And John's just comedic ability to chat with them um, was superb. But there was this one time on the morning market when I answered the phone and I'm chatting to this lady. I'm saying, all right, okay, what are you selling? So um, uh, I've just refurbed my hairdresser, so I'm selling four barber's chairs. I was like, right, okay, and how much do you want for them? Great. Uh, Can you describe them to us for a a bit? So I just have to write all this information down. And then I'd walk into the studio when the song was playing and go, there you go, John, there's your next few people. She's on line four, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and I and I think it was the last set of calls, so I just stayed in the studio with him. 
And uh, he, he, he opens the phone. He's like, Maureen, how are you? Oh, yeah. So you're selling these barber's chairs, are you? Yeah, yeah. And how much do you want for them? Oh, I'd like £100 each, please, John. All oh, right, OK. And uh, so hairdressers, oh, yeah, is it, is it busy? Is, is it going well? Oh, yeah, John, dead busy, dead busy. You went, oh, uh, are you still doing the old, uh, the old cotton blow job? <laughs> <laughs> now, unlike my incident with the bell ends, yeah. he realised immediately. <laughs> I'm like, I'm now lying on the floor, legs in the air. He is going. So, um, <clears throat> what number can people get you? <laughs> okay, thanks, Julie. And he, and then he went. I think he went to a went to a song because he couldn't speak. Um, but you know, there were a few things. But the other, the other one with. I'm sorry to go on about John again, but the other one at Red Rose Gold. Uh, I, again, I was in the studio. It's just good timing, and he's uh, he's talking about El Dorado, and he goes, "Oh, like El Dorado, I love that program. I was watching it last night. It's such a shame that it's going to end it's because that fizz. Oh, that fizz. Whenever I see it, he meant to say, I get all overcome with emulsion, which was like his kind of gag, right? Yeah. He said." Whenever I see it, I come all over myself. <laughs> and again, both of us in tears, lying on the floor. Couldn't believe it. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, so many really happy memories. And I did, he left CFM after about a, a year, a year to go off and do Century. So I haven't. I didn't actually work from him part post ninety four, ninety five, and yet we, you know, we stayed in touch the entire time. And I know when I got my job at Signal, he was one of the first people to phone Terry up and say, "You've made a brilliant hire there." Good on him. And he didn't need, again. He didn't need to do that stuff. And something else, Simon, that you uh, you told me about CFM was uh, can you can you tell a story about um, John Myers and Moyles, Chris Moyles? Yeah. Because um, a lot, again, there's there's a version of this in Moyle's book and there's a version of this in Myers' book, and I was there at the time. So um, basically what happened was, uh, and again, I'm going to reveal, you know, this, I don't think I've told, ever told John Myers this or anybody really, but I went for an interview in London um, when I was at CFM to be producer of Kiss Breakfast with Dave Pearce. Amazing. Um, and driving back, I drove through um, Stoke and I heard Chris Moyles on Signal. And I was like, me and my brother, would, and my brother came down with me and I was absolutely captivated. I was like, oh my God, who is this guy? He's incredible. Um, so I went back to, to, um, to CFM and what we used to do, me and John, when we were trying to find presenters, we'd literally get in John's car and we would drive around the country listening to radio stations. And he would phone them up on air, pretending to be a punter and go, oh, T, why don't you come and work for me? And it worked a few times. So I told him about this guy, Chris Moyles, and so he, he contacted him. John used to trust my kind of ear, really, on stuff like that. So he got Chris Moyles to come and see us in Carlisle. Moyles comes up, they have an interview, and go their separate ways while they think about it. And then John phones up Moyles and he goes, Team, I've got an offer to make you. Uh, 35 quid a shift to do an evening show on CFN. And Moyles said, I want 40. And Myers went... Too much money, and that was it. <laughs> like, this is the way, this is the version of the story I was given. But yeah, so we missed out on having Chris Moyles on CFM for five quid. <laughs> I mean, five five quid to have probably the well, he's going to be one of the best presenters in the history Absolutely. of UK radio. Absolutely, yeah. So 
where did you go from there? What next? So from CFM, I went to Wyvern. And uh, the reason I went to Wyvern was I got to a point at CFM, I've been there nine years. And I mean, nobody deserves to live in Carlisle for nine years. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, Carlisle. Um, Wasn't that, was was, was CFM the station where you gave away Catlett to live on air? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So (laughs) what I will say for John is he'd left by this point. (laughs) And and, um, the new MD, Daryl, had a bit more of a commercial focus. And um, so we had... um, uh, we did winning weekends every weekend. So every weekend, the sales team had to find someone to supply the prizes for a winning weekend. <laughs> and um, one weekend, it was just an extracts prize, which was some uh, flora margarine <laughs> and a cassette. One time, um, it was with an energy like company, and yet you either won a bag of coal or a gas bowl. <laughs> And then one time it was with um, WCF Country Centres. I don't know if you know, like, they're a th- don't know how far south they go, but so they used to have these big stores where, you know, farmers would go and get their wellies and whatever else. And so we did, we not only did a winning weekend for them, we did an OB outside <laughs> um, the store. So the same prizes we gave away there, we gave away in the store. I went in to do, I was doing a sports show at the time. You had to give away a prize every hour. So I actually had to stop giving people football scores <laughs> to give away a cat, cat toilet. Litre. I had a, a five litre, oh, you can, this hour you can win a five litre bag of cat litter with, with WCF country centres, Penrith, right? And and that was one of the better prizes. <laughs> I guarantee that you would have had a full switchboard. Oh yeah, you got a full switchboard for everything <laughs> else here. And it was brilliant. Do you know, there's a, I've got a lovely, we did something very similar at Viking and um, uh, there's a, I, I must find the audio at some point, but there's, do you remember David Johnson? Um, who yeah. I thought was a great jock and um, he was, <laughs> he, he was giving away, it was the 96.9 Viking FM's winning weekend and you could win a CD. Obviously full switchboard and he was giving away that hour, the, the best uh, of Boyzone and he, he put this guy live to air from Hull and he went, hey, well done, you've well, I can't do the Irish accent, you've got yourself the Boyzone best of and this guy goes, you're joking. And he goes, no, you're over the moon. He went, no, I fucking hate them. <laughs> <laughs> we, had a, we had a thing at CFM where loads of stations did it, but you had a jingle for when someone won something, right? <laughs> and it was like, another winner, CFM! <laughs> and this bed, this donut would play. And at the end, you'd go, um, uh, at the end, it would just go, another winner, CFM! So you had to time it. You're chatting to the call going, okay, Dave, you just won the cat litter. Uh, and uh, how are you feeling about that? Well, great, yeah, my little tootsie's going to be really delighted about cat litter. <laughs> Uh, and he'd chat away, and then he'd, and then you'd time it to go. Uh, and what are you? And they'd say another winner on CFM, right? But this one time, this guy went, "I'm a plumber." Well, the Well, I'm all for being open-minded, but I'm not all for discussing this live on air. Thank you. We are profoundly uh, sorry. All right, so let's get on to Wyvern, because I've got a lot of love for Wyvern, because, of course, uh, I live in uh, just outside Worcester. And um, that was one of our connections, wasn't it, when we met, that we both have uh, a lot of love for the city. But um, so, so you go to Worcester uh, as, as the programmer. Do you have fond memories yeah. of being there? 
I do actually, yeah. I mean, you know, you know my love for Worcester. You just mentioned it, really. And I had a great life there, you know. So I played for a football team, played for a cricket team. You know, it was, it's a real cafe culture kind of lifestyle in Worcester. Um, and we had a lot of serious drinkers at Wyvern. Oh, my God, and what a social scene. Because a lot of radio stations that you work at, they, it's so disparate where people live, whereas at Wyvern, everyone lived in Worcester. So, you know, you could, you'd get together all the time and, um, bless him, Tony Fisher, my my, my very close friend, um, was the ringleader um, for for that for the social side at Wyvern. Um, so much so that he would he'd finish on air at nine, he'd be in the pub at ten. Legend. He'd be he'd be hassling me at twelve to join him in the pub. I'd go and have a couple with him. I'd go back to work. He'd hassle that um, Ed Nell would finish at two. He'd get hassled from ten to two to come to the pub. Ed Nell would go for a few, then he'd go home. Then uh, whoever was on drive at the time, probably Rich Clark, he'd get hassled to join him at seven o'clock. This guy was in the pub the whole time. He'd, and then he'd go for a curry. And then he'd get up the next day, do it all again. I remember you telling me that even though he would spend all day in the pub, that he would get up in the morning and do a fine breakfast show. Oh, what a presenter. I mean, what a communicator, the most natural communicator that I've ever worked with. Um, just c- crazily good. And we did some, you know, we did some brilliant, fun things with him. Um, some things, you know, that um, you wouldn't be able to do now. But we did some, we did some really good stuff at Wyden, and I loved it. And we took a station that wasn't doing very well, you know, to to being clearly number one, raced past the BBC, and it's just a shame it's not, as, you know, not a thing anymore. Well, it is now, isn't it? Because they've relaunched it. Well, yeah, absolutely. Um, community station, but but yeah, no, loved it. Loved my time there. Some good people I worked with. I mean, if you think about. Tony Fisher followed by Ed Nell followed by Rich Clark on a station the size of Wyvern. I think that was pretty. Well, that was a pretty strong lineup. Uh, of course, Ed is a mutual friend of ours, and um, I was talking to Ed about um, the podcast Crunch and Roll, which he's uh, he's enjoying. Um, he's refusing to come on, which is absolutely fine. <laughs> <laughs> but I, because I, he knows what you're going to ask him. Well, about. well, no. You, so I, there is one story of Ed now, which I, I every time you and I meet up, I get you to share it to to people that are with us because it's such an amazing story, and he's fine with us sharing that story and naming him as well. Right. Okay. Um, with regards to the sponsored car, because <laughs> when it um, okay. when it comes to sponsored cars, this is the best sponsored car story on the planet. Um, yeah, it is. I mean, it was t- tough for me because, so he got a sponsored car. What made it equally tough for me was that actually it was my ex-wife that got him the sponsored car. So he begins there. Um, so, and this was, um, it didn't just have his name on it. I think it had his face on it as well. But yeah, so, so it was all logoed up with the, and it was a nice brand new car. And, um, Ed one evening went to see his then girlfriend and she lived opposite like a like Victoria Wines, I think it was, or something like that, or a, and a Tesco Express. And he thought, I'll, I'll just park the car in the car park opposite rather than outside her house. Next morning he gets up, phone, I get a phone call. Um, you know where my governor lives? Yeah. Could you, could you pop over? Yeah. Can you bring your uh, wife with you? Uh, yeah. So we drive around, we get there, and it is a scene of utter destruction. <laughs> this car, as honestly, I've never seen anything like it. I don't know whether they hated him or hated Wyvern or were just on the rampage, but it was quite near the student area. They had kicked the mirrors off the doors. 
They'd um, slashed the tyres. They had smashed the headlights. They had a go at the windscreen. They had literally done all sorts, but they then did something I don't think I'd ever seen anybody do on any sponsored car. As they climbed onto the roof, got a sharp object and scrawled the C word into the roof of this sponsored car. And so you can imagine Eddie showing me around and I'm going, oh God, oh, that's bad. Oh my. And then I look on the, oh, wow. Wow. Okay. But then, um, then like my ex has to phone the bloody dealer principal at the garage and go, we've got a bit of a problem. They send out a flatbed truck to pick it up, stick it on. And um, yeah, the the client didn't um, advertise on Wyvern ever again after that. I don't know why, but every I've heard that story so many times. And I, I, do you know? What I, I t- wish I'd taken pictures. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and every time you know we're together, you all, I get you to tell it. It always makes me cry with laughter. It's the c word on top. It's the effort of somebody yeah. actually getting on top of the vehicle to write it. They, they're that annoyed with Ed Nell or Wyvern. I love it. Do you know? Well, what? You- it's only fair, Simon, that whilst we're on the subjects of sponsored cars, oh, there is a story that I know that I am the only person on the planet to know this story because it was a secret, even from your wonderful mum, about, were you at Rock FM and you you borrowed the, were you using the sponsored, was it a VAT? Tell me that story because will you share that story for us? Yeah, go on then. Mum, this, my mum's listening. This is going to be a first for her. So thanks <laughs> for that, John. Um, and anybody that worked with me at the time. So Rock FM used to have this vehicle called the Rock FM Rockmobile and the local Peugeot garage supplied it. It was a Peugeot 405 estate. So it was, it was much like driving a I mean, cruise ship around. It was huge. And um, John Myers used to let me use it so because I was producing the breakfast show. So I'd be in at daft o'clock. So he was like, yeah, use, use the car. It's fine. Um, and I... Um, Play, I was a keen cricketer at the time, and we got the opportunity to play with the West Indies captain, a guy called Richie Richardson at the time. And um, we were playing against Blackpool schools. So it was all of these really rubbish cricketers from Rock FM, Richie Richardson, the West Indies captain, and versus Blackpool schools. And we have this game of cricket, brilliant. We have beer in the bar afterwards and drive home. On the way back, I enter the um, motorway a little bit too fast in the Rock FM Rockmobile. Um, and as it's an estate, the back end flips out. I go flying into a crash barrier one way. It flings me across the road. I go flying into a crash barrier the other way. Flings me back over. I pull into the hard shoulder in total shock. Literally, there are headlights pointing in all sorts of directions. The front of the car's got about two foot left of it. And I think, what am I going to do? So I phone my dad. Bless my dad. I love him. miss him dearly. Um, and always stuck up for his kids. Phone my dad. What's happened? I actually, yeah, I um, I phone my dad. What's happened? I explain. He goes right. Say nothing to anybody. I'm coming to get you. So he drives to get me. By the time he's got to me, he's concocted a story about what's happened <laughs> that's going to keep me out of trouble. So he drives the headlight pointing everywhere. Car, you know, back back to the house I drive his car and he's like he said to me he went right anybody asked you you got cut up by some boy racers and it made you panic and you you swung the car around and you crashed it okay I was like right okay so I had to go into work and tell this story and uh 
Mike Henfield, who I mentioned earlier, was very vocal about telling me he didn't believe me. Um, I think he said they should be putting this on Jack and Ori was one of his comments, uh, which, which I think he, you know, I'm not sure he felt bad about up until the point where I um, came into work with a fractured arm, but you know, um, but yeah. And then I, and then, you know, John was really lovely about it. Um, John said to me, he went, David, no matter, it's just a card, as long as you're okay, as long as you're okay. I was like, oh, thanks, John. Then he pat me off to the dealer principal on my own to show him the car. So I get to the dealers and I've got the car there and he's like effing and blinding and he's furious, furious this guy is. And then he goes, right, 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 give me some details for the insurance. How old are you? Uh, 19. And his face just went white. I went, what? And he went, you're not insured. <laughs> I was like, Shh. I went, and he went, he, he said, that's about £4,000 worth of damage you've done there and you're not insured. He said, I expect you to bring me £200 a month for the next six months wow. to help pay for it. And I ended up having to do that. And £200 was most of my wages <laughs> at the time. So, uh, yeah. So, sorry, mum. Um, but dad, you know, dad was thinking of me. Oh, yeah. So let's go from Wyvern. So where did you go to next after Wyvern? Um, from Wyvern, I went to TFM. Okay. side. Yeah. And I got a um, very good friend of mine, Trevor James, bigged me up to Steve King, who was um, looking after Bauer programmers at the time. And then they advertised two jobs. Uh, TFM and Viking. Right. And Steve King asked to meet me at services, uh, Tamworth services. And um, he basically said, like, I, you know, I want you to interview for one of these jobs. I said, well, which job do you think is the better job for me to go for? And he said, TFM. I went up to TFM, yeah, got a job, did some fun things. And I was only there for about nine months. Um, but, you know, brought Graham Mack in to do breakfast, who did, Brilliant things. Literally took the station from fifth to first at breakfast. Um, and uh, yeah, it was a very short-lived time in Teesside, but made a lot of friends that I'm still friends with today from up there. And is this the point where you moved to the mighty Hallam? Yeah. So then I get a phone call from Steve King. Can you come and see me at Metro? So I drive up to Metro and all the way there, I'm thinking he's going to offer me Hallam. He's going to offer me Hallam. Um, cause I think Gary had left Hallam to go to Key at that point. So there was a vacancy at Hallam. Um, and, um, yeah. And, and he offered me Hallam and I snapped it up because in my head, my dream had always been Key 103 because I'm born in Greater Manchester. You know, it was always to me the biggest station that you could work at. Um, and I thought, well, if I get to Hallam, the last three programmers from Hallam have gone to Key 103. I'm going to be closer than ever. I get to Hallam and then realise, no, <laughs> I've done one key one three. But yeah, so then I went to Hallam and had you know five and a half brilliant years. Because you you loved Hallam, didn't you? I mean, the, some of the ideas that you came up with with the team, I'm sure, were were brilliant. I mean, Hallam was a, was a great station, wasn't it? It was wonderful. We loved it. We had a great time. There was a, a couple of year period where I've never worked anywhere more together, where the sales team and the and the programming team are all just common goal, getting on really well. We all understood what we were trying to achieve. We all understood how we could help each other out to do it. Um, so it was a it was a brilliant, brilliant time. And some of the ideas, I mean, I know your your favourite is the caravan. Caravan's brilliant. Um, 
Um, but you know, we did. We won awards all, all over the place. Re- record audience fix was great. Um, do you want to tell you about speak about the caravan? Or? Yes, please. Yeah, I mean, I, I've it's a, it's a, it was a cracking idea. Can't take credit for it. I think it was James Crooks um, and and John Harrison or Big John's idea. So um, they wanted to convince the audience that um, that we that, that we had a caravan in the back of the radio station that used to go out and about around Sheffield and appear at county shows and things like that. So we bought an old caravan for about five hundred quid, and we researched the branding from back in the 80s and stuck all of the branding on it. We weathered the caravan. James Lett was out there with mud trying to make it look crap. Um, it was a crap caravan. He didn't need to put mud on it. <laughs> say, yeah. um, James Crooks got all of his old smash hits magazines out and he decorated the inside to look like it would have looked at the time. And we went on air and said, who wants us to come and do the breakfast show from this? We found this caravan. We want to save it. Who wants us to come and do the breakfast show from their drive? Um, in the caravan and oh my god we were inundated um, I think we caused a, f- a few minor bumps um, having this caravan in, in people's drives and things like that but people went nuts for it and the amount of people that went I remember this I saw this at the Sheffield show I saw this there I've been in this caravan before. I love this caravan this caravan's amazing and um, they really fell for it and it was it was one of the most brilliant things we ever did um, and then, you know, John and James are geniuses. They're absolute geniuses. There's a reason why they've been on that station for so long and, and number one for so long. And they keep evolving the show. They don't sit still. They keep looking at new ways of doing things. You know, they have very successful things in the show, like Hallamster, mm. and then decide to take that off. Um, but the caravan, they then, you know, then it was a campaign of, well, the bosses want to get rid of it. What do we do? And so the audience were all piling on, saying you can't get rid of it. And in the end, um, the caravan ended up parked in the back of the radio station. Uh, and I only recently discovered that um, many years later, somebody came along and set fire to the caravan in the radio station car park. It then set fire to the trees behind it, which were next to the main uh, train line into Sheffield. So somebody set fire to that caravan, actually stopped trains being able to get into Sheffield for hours and hours one day. Um, so. The caravan's legend lives on. It's a great story and a great, great idea. So then you go from Hallam FM and you go, you go south. I mean, and, and essentially you leave. I mean, was that EMAP or was it Bower at the time? It, it was EMAP to begin with and Bower at the end. Yeah. So you you uh-huh. jump to the dark side. You go to was it Global? I went to Global. So I'm sitting in Hallam. Phone goes, um, and there's a Scottish voice on the phone. Dear boy, come and see me. And so I got an hour with Richard Park in London. And there were people that work, uh, worked at Capital that I knew that said, I've, I've never had an hour with Richard Park. Um, I've been here 20 years. Um, and I went down, had a brilliant chat with him. Um, he called me dear boy a number of times. We chatted about cricket and football mainly. And then for the last 10 minutes, we talked about work. And he just said, look, where do you, we really want you at Global. Where do you want to go? And I said, well, if I could stay commutable from Sheffield, it would be good. The Northwest is where my family are and, uh, and I'm from. Or the South Coast might be quite an adventure. And he went, leave it with me, dear boy, leave it with me. And that was it. And the phone goes a few days later, right, you know, um, I can't remember who it was. I think it might have been Brent Tobin. It was like, well, yep, we've got the job uh, on the South Coast. And so off we go, pack up the house, pack up everything, off down to the off down to the South Coast um, to run Capital South Coast, or it was Galaxy at the time, actually, Galaxy and Heart um, down there. 
Did you enjoy it down there? Loved the life. Loved the, the, I mean, you know, when you wake up in the morning and there's, you've got no plans, so we'll just go to the beach. That's quite cool. Uh, Or over to the Isle of Wight or into London in an hour and 20 minutes. That was good. The job, less so. I think, if I'm really honest, I think I was the right person, but in the wrong place at the wrong time. Um, And I think that that was due to some things that were happening in my personal life at the time, but also the professional side of things. Um, You know, I didn't, it was, I'd gone from Hallam where I was very much in control of what was happening to global where I felt like I was actually just facilitating more than programming at that point. Um, And I got to make a few changes and, you know, and again, I've made some friends there that I'm still friends with now, but, um, what I would say about global is that I, I thought the top of the business were, were superb, absolutely superb. I thought Stephen, Richard and Ashley, I, you know what, I couldn't speak highly enough of them. Um, I thought they were brilliant and they really looked after us. You know, we had, you know, the best technology, you know, they really looked out for you and the way they did well, the switch from galaxy to capital. Oh my word. You know, there wasn't a sign of a galaxy brand anywhere that, that, I'm sure that happened on a bank holiday Monday and the signs outside the building had changed. Um, it's like, you know, January the 2nd or something like that. So the global as a business, I think they, they were, they were brilliant, really looked after us at that time. I mean, other people have different experiences of that and that's, that's their experience. But mine is that it was, you know, as a business, they were great, but no, I didn't, I, I can't say I, there were some highlights. We did some good stuff, but is not it's not going to ever be my favorite place. Well, I think worked. I think one of the highlights to come out of your time on the south coast is one of the greatest radio games in the history of the wireless and of course that is Pork Balls. True that. Um there's a lot of conjecture about who invented this. Yeah, so um, this this is why I feel this is the the perfect platform to try and nail down who actually came up with the idea of Pork Balls and just uh, can you just briefly explain Pork Balls because um, yeah. when we when we teamed up on uh, on free and uh, you're our senior producer he said I've got a great idea it's called Pork Balls. <laughs> Myself and Juliana were like what the hell? <laughs> but it was a great idea and it really worked. Um so so basically, the idea of Port Balls came about sitting in Capital in London in a meeting room, planning a new show. The new presenters were JK, yep. of JK and Joel, and Lucy Horobin. So we'd, pulled, we'd managed to get them together to do this show. We're sitting there, we're planning out uh, an idea. Now, JK thinks it was his idea. I'm pretty certain it was not JK's idea. Right. I mean, JK, I'm ruling you out straight away. <laughs> Lucy thinks it was her idea. Yeah. I think it might have been a combo of me and Lucy that came up with it. Okay. I think that's that's the kindest way I'm going to do it. JK, you can get lost. You, you weren't involved, mate. Um, but uh, so the idea of Port Balls is, caller comes on air, you um, sit them down and have a chat with them and you say, right, can you give us a random number? They give you a random number. You then phone a Chinese takeaway in Australia that's open at that time, and you ask them what number Port Balls is on their menu. If the two numbers match, they get Chinese sent around their house tonight. Now, the genius of it um, is that in five years of doing it, it was only ever won once, and that was on your show. <laughs> and and I have never seen a reaction in a studio like it. <laughs> uh, but 
But listening back, I think she actually got the number wrong. Oh, no, no, um, no, no. Don't kill, uh, don't kill I think that, she did. Don't kill um, that magical Jim, moment. I don't, I don't know if you know this or not, but I think I think I told you at the time, but I phoned her up after the show and I went, um, right, so um, are you looking forward to your Chinese tonight? She went, don't like Chinese. <laughs> We're having a party. Oh, yeah. Now, uh, you move from uh, the South Coast, you do a little bit of work at the BBC, and then you come to free. Where we we meet and we embrace and fall in love. We did. Um, I didn't know whether I liked you to begin with. um, Are you you being honest? Yeah, I didn't know how to take you to begin with. Um, And I'm quite difficult to read as well. Um, But you said to me early on, you went, you're going to prefer Giuliano to begin with, but then you'll come round to me. I was right. I was right, wasn't I? I mean, I still love Jules, but yeah, you're right. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> thank you, thank you. Well, it takes, do you know, I mean, you know the history of our time at Free and, and we lost a, a very good producer, Barry, and then obviously someone else is coming in. So it's, I'm not very good with change, but then, you know, over time we become very close friends and, and I was right. We only right. rowed once, didn't we? We had a massive fallout once where you were slamming doors and um, and it's before the show started. Do you remember it? Yeah, and you were, you were in the wrong. No, no, you were in the wrong. <laughs> <laughs> is that when we didn't speak for the whole show? We didn't speak for the whole show. Because <laughs> uh, I'd said, you'd said, well, that's your, that's your bloody job, isn't it? And I'd, I'd, you thought I'd stuck a finger up at you and I hadn't. And that was it. Yeah, I mean, there were, there were early mornings. and uh, It was very early. Yeah, it was very early. Um, and and did, did you enjoy your time? <laughs> this is a ridiculous question because you're going to say no just to be an arse. But did you, did you enjoy your time at free? Yeah, I mean, we... But I think I do think back on it fondly, and I do think about some of the stuff we did in that short time because it was only about a ten month period. I think. Um, I mean, do you remember the Capri thing, which was brilliant? Yeah. So we went we went on air and kicked off because Coca Cola weren't bringing the Coca Cola truck to Birmingham and said Capri should do it. Little did we know Capri were doing it. We had no idea. <laughs> they came. They phoned us up and went, "How did you know about this?" And we were like, um. "We'll jump on that." And then. <laughs> Yeah, and then like Glimpernell stuff was great when you know we when Saturday Kitchen was changing the chef and we wanted Glimpernell to be on it and we ended up on Saturday Kitchen. Yeah, we did. With doing doing the wine bit in the studio. Um, and then obviously our time together. I mean, we had some some wonderful, uh, genuinely some some amazing times doing that show with you and. Um, a couple of, of memories, one of which, and it, it, for some reason, it, it, well, we're going back to cars, but I, I, I'll never forget the time that <laughs> we were about to take the branded car um, to a listener's house, by the way. And we, we let me tell you the car story and then the listener's house story. So the car story is Simon was driving the branded car and it was facing the wall. So we had to reverse the vehicle out in order to get us out of the, uh, the BR&B car park. And for some reason, uh, the gaffer, Simon Monk, was struggling to get it in reverse. <laughs> Yeah. So every time he found the bite on the car and put the accelerator down, it was creeping ever so close to the wall. And at one point I turned to you and said, Simon, you've got one more chance to get this car out or we are screwed. I mean, that is, it's not my favourite car story from uh, Free. My favourite car story is when you went to your car, uh, your very dirty car one day in an underground car park and somebody had written, Foxy, you rod on the back of it. Yeah. <laughs> and we had no idea who it was. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> I'm we sure. still don't. And uh, when, when uh, Simon eventually managed to reverse that car out of the space and we went, to, we were doing this, it was a good, good... Um, it was a good S&P thing, sales and promotion thing. It was We were basically going around and doing DIY SOS in people's houses. And we went to one woman's house. And let's not forget, 
You, Simon, as the producer, would have contacted this lady and said, in the next couple of weeks, we're going to come down as a team and I think we were fixing some decking or something in the garden. And you'd have given this lady plenty of warning that we were coming. So we arrive, and uh, myself and Gemma, sadly Juliana had left the show at that point. Simon had come with us, and uh, we knock on the door. The lady lets us in. She shows us to the back garden, and there is dog shit everywhere. <laughs> I mean, everywhere. Everywhere. <laughs> surely, surely at some point, when Simon had, when you had called her and said, we're coming, she'd have gone... Garrett, we need to pick up the dog turds. <laughs> Free radio are coming. No, not us. <laughs> Do you remember? She offered us a bacon sandwich. You all went, no, no. <laughs> no, coffee. No, not thirsty. Oh, we've been up. We've been up since four. We've been dying. It was like walking through a minefield trying to get to the fence that we were trying to paint for it. It was just hideous. All right, so uh, fun memories of of free radio BRNB, and I, I I know that you you always wanted to be at BRNB. That was always that was one of your ambitions, wasn't it? Yeah, well, I, I I always wanted to work in a I always wanted to wake up a massive city, and I think when you in that at that time, I loved the thought that we were up before everyone and we could see the sunrise, and it really felt big. It felt like you were waking up a massive city. So I I tried to go to BRMB previously and had been blocked by GWR as the GCAP kind of merger was happening. Yeah, I'd, I'd always wanted to be there. It's huge, huge um, frequency, should we, should we say, because it's obviously not BRMB anymore. But mm. um, yeah, loved it. And then Signal 1 and Signal 2. Yeah, Signal 1 and Signal 2, some big characters there, um, some <laughs> big challenges. Again, you know, we managed to have some fun. You know, I've got a death threat. Never had one of those before. I've got a death threat. Remind me, what was the death threat for? Uh, we changed the breakfast show oh, yeah. to bring you in. <laughs> oh, yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, my, it was uh, they wrote to Parliament about it. Somebody told me I should start wearing a bulletproof vest. Um, and my favourite was, we're going to do a protest on Saturday with a human ring around the building. Two things that fell over on that one. Do the protest on a day when no one's there. Well done. Uh, and a ring around the building. It's on a terrace street. The ring around the building would need about 3,000 people um, to make it work. So good luck. I'm not sure they were that popular. Um, but yeah, so did Signal you, was did you different. find Did you find Signal a challenge? I did. I mean, it's a big heritage name in, in radio um, and there were a lot of challenges there. But what I would say is there is no, and I'm sure you'll agree with this, actually, there is no better audience to broadcast to than Stokies. Like, there just isn't. They will join in with anything. They will give their last pounds to charity. You know, they are just so engaged in what Signal does because they think it's their radio station. Um, and it was a, you know, it was a challenge at times. There's some I say some big characters there. Some people have been there a long, long time, um, and to to kind of make change was was uh, was an uphill struggle at times. I think there, but um, but I didn't. I did love it. I mean, I didn't love the drive to Stoke all the time and living in hotels and stuff like that because I was living in Leeds at the time. But um, yeah, good good times. Particularly with you and Emma, I think you and Emma was the was the peak at that for for me there. Shorter lived than it should have been, but how do you stop a phenomenon like Emma from going on to do what she does. Good Lord. I've never, you just said something nice about Emma. That's, I've never. I, know, ever- I would never do it to her face. I've never heard that before. She'd be over never the moon with that. Yeah. I mean, we had our run in simply me and Emma, but. Um- yeah, one or two. Yeah, one or two. But, um, you know, I, I think, um, 
we, we all it was, it was a it's myself and uh, Emma and you and uh, and Matt Smith as well um, who no longer speaks to me for some unknown reason um, we, we were a good team I think and we, we we did some good stuff you know we all did our little yeah. bit yeah when you think about you know I, I think my favorite thing that we did we did some great we actually did some great video stuff at that point I think with Emma you know the when we when we um, serviced her car and when you serviced her car and just made it every time she turned left the horn went on um and stuff like that it was just that was just fun stuff and when we you know because emma is the nicest person you what you look at her on social media she's just the nicest person in the world isn't she she's always going on social media oh, yeah how's everyone doing <laughs> all right Good luck. Why? 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 Um, that's two nice and, things. Blimey, you're on a roll. And, and 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 then so we tested out how nice she actually was, didn't we? And we stuck her in a restaurant, her favourite place to be. Stuck an earpiece in her and made her do stuff she didn't want to do. And oh. the, the people in the restaurant had no idea what was going on. She came across as a terrible person. <laughs> and obviously, we revealed what it was. But um, but it was brilliant. That stuff was brilliant. And. Life from your drive was brilliant. You know, we just had some, we did some good stuff. Yeah. I mean, we did it. We didn't have a crappy old caravan. We had a really slinky motorhome worth about 120 grand on that one. But we, we, we did to start, and then at the end of the week, it absolutely stank of farts. Um, and then, Not me. No, because as you know, I don't do that. Well, you don't. No, no, no. Um, and and now, Simon, you are at BFBS, the Forces Station. I am. Yep. Yeah. So I'm now um, looking after the radio and live events teams all across the world um, for BFBS. So it's a completely different challenge. It's a brilliant challenge. The audience, I think, are the best. You know, who doesn't want to serve the people that serve? You know, it's, um, it is, it's an incredible place to be. And you get to travel the world as well. I do. I mean, I joined a week after... Covid, so <laughs> great time in the <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and so so far I've been to Cyprus, but I'm due to go to the Falkland Islands and Kathmandu soon. So, yeah, I mean, going over to Cyprus and seeing what they do on the ground is just incredible. You know, the, our armed forces are wonderful, wonderful, and to, as I say, to make radio that really matters. You know, like you know what it's like. Sometimes you're doing the show and you're like, oh. Does anybody really care about this? You know, in commercial radio, you do stuff there and it, it lands, it matters. It's very, very different. Um, well, Simon, thank you very much for being on Crunch and Roll. It's, uh, it's my pleasure. I've listened to all of the um, episodes so far, so I'll be uh, sending you a critique <laughs> uh, ahead of a coaching session uh, <laughs> later. No, it's a brilliant podcast. Love it. Thank you for what you and Simon do. It's, it's superb. So, um you know, big thumbs up from me and please don't listen to this episode. You've been listening to Crunch and Roll with me, Simon Monk. Subscribe on your favourite podcast app to get every new episode as soon as it drops. Crunch and Roll is a 969 media production presented by John Fox and produced by Pow Wow, Botty, or also known as his actual name, Simon Bachowski. Oh yeah. We've got um, someone else who's um, very keen to be on this is... Is he? Yeah. Do I tell you? Do I ever tell you that he obviously he used to work for me and he was a right little shit when he worked? <laughs> I remember you saying. Yeah. <laughs>